You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, good morning. Hope you guys are well. If you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and open to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. And so if you're new with us, um, that, that's, that's how we handle Scripture as we go verse by verse through different books of the Bible. And we've been in the book of Acts for quite a few months now. And Lord willing, we'll be in the book of Acts. Um, we're actually about halfway through. Um, and so we'll be in the book of Acts for probably another six or seven months or so. Actually, it's going to be a little longer than that because we're going to take a break and do a Christmas series. Um, but we'll finish Acts around next spring sometime. Um, but we do wholeheartedly believe that this is the way that God intends for us to handle Scripture um, together. It's, it's the best way uh, to make disciples uh, because it's God's way. Because it, it, it forces us to consider the whole counsel of God and not to cherry-pick different passages that might make us feel better about who the Lord is or might make us feel better really about anything. Um, uh, we want to give you the Word every single week. And so that's our goal, not only um, in this time on Sunday mornings, but also in every single room where there are people gathered on this campus every Sunday. Um, their desire and passion is to open the Bible and to have the living God speak to us through His Word. And so that's, that's what we hope for. That's what we pray for every time we open this, this sacred book is that the Lord himself would help us to understand and know his, his word. Well, in Acts chapter 14, you, you may have heard the saying, same song, different verse. Um, really, for the past few chapters, it, that's kind of what it's been. I mean, as they go out and they begin to preach the gospel, there are those who believe the gospel. There are those who hate them for preaching the gospel. We see some persecution. We see that they come together and gather, and then they leave the town and go to the next place, and they do the exact same Thing. Well, Acts chapter 14 is the same song, but a different verse. And, and for time's sake this morning, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of overlap, but at the end of chapter 13, we read in verse 51 that Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet in Antioch of Pisidia and uh, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they are making their way from Antioch at Pisidia southeast to Iconium, and, and that's important, but the most important thing to see here is that these disciples, in spite of what they have experienced, really at almost every stop, are filled with joy, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what we'll do this morning, we're going to do like we have, again, same song, different verse. I'm going to read through some sections, and I think there's some really applicable things in each section that we'll take away and that we'll pause um, and on, on a couple of them, we'll go down a little bit of a rabbit trail just to make sure we understand what, what's going on and what I'm hoping to communicate. And then we'll wrap up with one overarching takeaway from this morning. So if you would look down with me in Acts chapter 14, picking up at verse 1. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And so... I'll pause there and, and remind you that they, they are still speaking with power. But again, if you look at the end of chapter 13 and verse 52, they're filled with joy and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And whenever we see that phrase, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it's, about, it's used about 14 times. It's always followed with an effective proclamation of the gospel. Like, like that's what follows. So when you see filled with the Holy Spirit, or even for us today, when we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, at its bare minimum, it is a faithful proclamation of the gospel. And then by God's grace, what we also see is that it is a, an effective proclamation of the gospel. And so they're continuing to 
speak with power and to speak with clarity. And many are coming to faith, as Luke tells us. Then in verse 2 it says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and this is an interesting choice of words here, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Same song, different verse. Right? I, I joked last week, it wouldn't be the book of Acts if once things start to go well, if they didn't go south quickly. We've seen this conjunction many times in our study, but everybody's believing, things are going great, but there's always this group that has animosity, and this group particularly are the unbelieving Jews who have stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind. Now, um, this, this is the Jewish community instigating some sort of, I, I would like to think of it this way, like, of, like mental poison. And so they want those that are listening to Paul and Barnabas to think negatively about Paul and Barnabas. And so the contrast in verses 1 and 2 is you have Paul and Barnabas giving the minds of the people the truth, which is obviously what they need. That's contrasted with these Jews, these unbelieving Jews, giving their minds, poisoning their minds to what is actually not true and what is bad. More than likely, this poisoning comes in the form of lies. They're probably causing them to question Paul and Barnabas's character. Probably comes in the form of a forceful type manipulation. There's probably character questioning. There's probably motive questioning. And so um, I think it's important for us to pause when we see this because there's a really good chance that a lot of us have maybe experienced something similar. When our character's questioned and when our motives are questioned, even in those moments when we do have good intentions and we're trying to do the right thing, when someone sets out to poison our character or to poison the minds of those that are around us to think a certain way about us, then they can just say, well, well are they doing it for the right reason? And what can you say? Really, you're backed in a corner. When somebody questions your motives, you're backed in a corner because you do the right thing and they say it's for the wrong reason. You do the wrong thing and they say, I told you. And so this is a wicked form of manipulation. But these unbelieving Jews have set out to poison the minds of the people that are wanting to listen to Paul and Barnabas. Pick up in verse 3. It says, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In verse 6, But the people of the city, now if you underline or highlight, I want you to get this word, but the people of the city were divided. They were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. And then in verse 6 it says, When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it, that's Paul and Barnabas, and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And I want to back up because of the word that I asked you to underline or highlight, this word division. And I have a slide for this because I want you to understand, I think it's vitally important to understand that throughout Scripture and even today, when there is a proclamation of the truth, I'm, I'm, some of you, this thought is going to bring back horrible childhood memories, and you, you may have PTSD from it, okay? But think about chopping firewood, all right? When you chop a piece of firewood and you hit it right, what happens? It splits. When, when the truth 
is preached, when the truth is proclaimed in every context, it's like an axe coming down and chopping a piece of firewood, and there is division. And so what we've seen, we've seen faithful, bold proclamation and preaching of the gospel, which has led to division. Now that may surprise us because a lot of our Christian culture doesn't really ever highlight division. We highlight unity and everybody being on the same page. But when there's preaching, faithful preaching of the gospel in a church, outside of the church, anywhere, in any context, there's division. And that division is characterized by those who believe it and in Acts, those who persecute it. Or you could just simplify it and say those who believe it and those who don't. The Bible does not have a category that's in the middle. There's no such thing as someone who's straddling the fence. There's no gray area in Scripture. There's a bold proclamation of the truth and there's either a belief and acceptance to the truth or there's a rejection of what is actually true. I don't know if this is surprising for you. It may be. And, and there's a chance the verses I'm about to reference for you are not highlighted in your Bible. But Christ himself said in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. These are the words of Jesus. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Our Lord says no. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. And we're not going to be surprised by this last one. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. No, no shocker there. Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Christ again says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's radical teaching. And again, there's a chance that's not highlighted. There's a chance you've never posted that on Facebook. I, I'm a scripture poster, okay? I've yet to post these on Facebook because they fall in the category of those that really need explanation and expounding and context and all the things around it. But we read things like this, and, and, and we should go, whoa, hold on a second. Father against son, son against father. Th these teachings from Jesus, they, they make us feel uncomfortable. But what I want to push us towards this morning is to let them do their work. Because these teachings from Christ are meant to get our attention. Because these teachings from Jesus are supposed to produce Radical disciples and followers of His. There's also a section of Scripture in Luke that speaks to, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but the, essentially the hatred of other things. Um, the hatred of other things so that you can love Christ supremely. And he mentions some good things there. He mentions family there. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother? Here's what he means. He means that when you wholeheartedly commit to live for the glory of God and to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to fail to meet the expectations of people that love you. 
it's going to seem like hate to them. It seems like hate to the father who genuinely loves his son, to, to the unbelieving father who genuinely has been a good dad and loves his son, but his son has come to know the Lord, and his son's going to walk away from, from everything they planned, all the expectations for maybe it's sports, maybe it's work, maybe it's academics, maybe it's whatever it is, and he says, Dad, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus now, and I'm going to go this way. To that dad, it, it's going to feel like hate, but what Jesus is encouraging and commanding the follower of Jesus to do is to follow him. As a parent, as a parent, it's going to feel like hate to your children when you demand them to live in a way that honors the Lord. As a parent and a follower of Jesus Christ, we, are going to, we should demand things of our children and train our children in a way to live that glorifies the Lord. Our, our hope as parents should be that our children come to know Jesus Christ. Our hope and prayer as parents should be that our children love Jesus more than they love anything else. And it's our job as parents to lead them to Him. And for our kids at times, we're going to say no. And they're going to think we hate them. Following Jesus requires us to look into the eyes sometimes of people that we love dearly and not abandon them. No. For clarity. This is not abandonment. This is faithful following of Christ in our closest relationships. And Jesus wants to be clear to know that He understands the emotional ties and the biological ties. And all of those are good things that we have with people that are you know, maybe in our family that don't follow Jesus. And when you come to follow Jesus and you're in a family of those who don't follow Jesus, there's a chance they're going to think you hate them. I used to go to Ecuador every year on a mission trip. Ray and I would go together, Ray Anderson, in, in, a, in a previous church that we served. And, and um, I don't remember if it's the first or second year that we went, but there was this young lady, and I don't even remember her name. I used to know it, but um, we were sharing the gospel in these different little places, and this, this young lady came, came to receive Jesus, but she was, she was Catholic, and, and her family was very close-knit. And in these Ecuadorian communities, um, Catholicism reigned supreme, um, but, but, but what they preached in, in these churches was not the gospel. It was a works-based, man-centered, self-righteous religion. And, and so that's what these people were con consumed with. Well, she professed Christ, but her biggest fear as, as we left was how her family was going to receive her. And so we came back the next year, and, and, and the, the local missionary there told us of this young lady, and she did come and visit us again, but that she had been ostracized from her family. That they had totally rejected her and asked her to leave the family because she was a now a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And, and that's just one example of, of many examples. You may have personal stories of your genuinely desiring to follow Jesus Christ, but, but it causes division. And our Lord was clear about that. It's supposed to. Brothers and sisters, we're not supposed to look like everybody else. We're not supposed to live like everybody else. Therefore, that's going to confront others. This isn't just something within the family. I think this is something culturally that we are experiencing. It seems to me like the, the, the cardinal sin of the day for evangelical churches is to offend someone. That seems to be like the biggest no-no. Like whatever it takes at all costs, do not offend anyone. Right? And it's just snowflakes for days. Because we can't offend, we can't confront, 
We can't say anything. And, and there's no teaching of what's clear in Scripture that the truth brings division. Now, this is not an attitude of hatred. This is not an attitude of abandonment. This is just a humble attitude that is committed to what is true in God's Word. But in our culture, it does mean, it, it does mean that the ethical implications of the gospel also cause division. When we, as a church, stand on biblical principles and what the Scripture teaches about sexuality, what Scripture teaches about gender, what Scripture teaches about marriage, biblical unity is not unity at all costs. Christian unity, biblical unity, has a hub. And it's what's true. And at the center of that hub is Christ himself and his word. It's not Christian unity if it's not centered on what is true. And so I, I don't want us to be confused by this division because we're going to see division, see division, see division. And I wanted us to kind of, you know, fast forward, leapfrog all the way to 2023 and go, hey, hey, we see the same thing. When the truth is preached, the axe comes down. There are those who believe. There are those who don't. Verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, I'm sorry, in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now we've dealt with quite a few of these kind of miracles. The most important thing to see here, most important thing to see here, and this will be another takeaway at the end, is, is how much this mimics Peter's healing of the, of, of the beggar at the temple gate back in chapter 3. Now I'll elaborate more on that in a second. Let's, let's continue. Verse 11. So this man has been healed, and obviously every time we see a healing that's in public, it stirs the crowd up. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Laconian. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, I think there's really good reason to believe that Paul and Barnabas do not speak Laconian. So they're not 100% sure what's going down. Now, now we're going to see. They catch on. But, but what's happening are these Laconians. Now, let me add to this that this is the first purely Gentile community that they've preached in. There's no Jewish influence. And so the religion that's of the day is really can change with the day. There are many different things that are believed in. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about the, just sort of the, the, the subtleness of the human heart in, in this culture that was just seeking for what is true. Well, there were many different religions. There were many different gods. And so Paul and Barnabas are taking the gospel to a purely Gentile, no real religious, no Judaism for sure, no structured religious format. And so they heal this man, and it stirs the crowd. Well, notice verse 12. I don't know, maybe some of you have been accused of being Zeus and Hermes before, okay? Maybe so. Me, no. Barnabas they called Zeus. I'm sorry, let me back up verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So they think that they're gods. Paul, I'm sorry, Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. So Hermes was the proclaimer, the communicator in Greek mythology. Reading on. Verse 13. And the priest of Zeus. So, so Zeus has a priest in this community. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to sacrifice with the wanted to offer sacrifice with 
the crowd. Now, we need to do a little bit of work here to understand, like, what in the world is going on? How did we go from preaching Jesus to healing a, a man that's crippled to all of a sudden Zeus and Hermes are on the scene? Well, there's a Roman poet at this time whose name was Ovid. Ovid wrote a book called Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis was a, a compilation of over 250 mythological tales. And all of these mythological tales were about transformation. And so everybody in this community had been taught from this book. There's a, there's a really good chance many of them had read from this book. And so in, in their sort of religious culture, they were always looking for transformation. Now, here's the thing. They didn't see a lot of transformation. They'd only read about transformation. And so they were seeking transformation. And so that's where they, they go from like zero to 60 really fast in our minds. Because how, how all of a sudden are Paul and Barnabas, Zeus and Hermes? Well, there was one particular story that's told in Metamorphosis, you know, written by this poet Ovid, in that Zeus and Hermes were sort of undercover, and they, they go into Lystra, into this particular town, they go into this town asking for a place to stay, and, and everybody rejects them and says, we don't have room, we don't have room, we don't have room, we don't have room. Well, there's this one elderly couple that welcomes them in, and in this story, um, Zeus and Hermes, um, in, in rewarding this elderly couple that welcomed them in, takes them up to a mountaintop. Now watch this. And a flood comes and kills everybody else. Happy ending, right? Flood comes and kills everybody else. Well, it is a happy ending for the elderly couple because as the elderly couple looks down from the mountain, they see their home turned into a golden temple. And so that's the context of these people that are constantly looking and seeking for Little g, God. Paul and Barnabas come into that scene and into that context and heal this man. And what are they thinking? Metamorphosis. They're not wrong. This dude was this and now he's this in an instant. This has to be Zeus and this has to be Hermes. And they're thinking and recognizing the gods that now they would be rewarded. Well, Paul catches on and Barnabas in verse 14, he says, But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, now they're figuring out, like, oh my goodness. It says, They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. And this is the first sermon, essentially. We don't get all of it, but we get a portion. The first sermon to a purely Gentile people. Non-Jewish people. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And then Luke tells us in verse 18 their response. Even with these words, they are scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Can you imagine? Like this is a, I mean some of you, other than some of you maybe being cold or hot because there's no way to make you all happy. Like this is a pretty comfortable environment. But these guys are preaching 
in a context where people, the priest of Zeus, are, he's actively bringing the oxen down to the altar. And they're wanting to offer sacrifices because they think Paul and Barnabas are gods, and, and they're preaching in this context going, whoa, 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 no, time out. And then he offers the words that we just read. A couple takeaways from this section. First is this, and I mentioned this at the beginning, but this miracle mimics those of Peter. So, so what's the point? Why would Luke give us this particular miracle? It certainly wasn't the only one, and why would he add it? Well, what this miracle does is it validates Paul's apostolic authority. It's letting us know, it's letting the first century readers know that Paul had the same apostolic authority as did the other apostles. Second takeaway. Evangelism is always one sinner pleading with another sinner. Where did I get that from? Did you notice Paul's intentionality around establishing common ground? We are men, what did he say? Just like you. Don't put us up here. We don't want to be. We shouldn't be. But we are men just like you. And, and, and brothers and sisters, like you know, for those of you that have a desire to share your faith, this is evangelism 101. It is vitally important in sharing the gospel that we are intentional about understanding that evangelism and even discipleship. So evangelism is always one sinner pleading with another. And discipleship is always one sinner encouraging another. But it's important that we understand as we evangelize that we're not on our high horse. That we're not self-righteous. That we're not looking down on people. It means a lot to the world to let them know we're just like you. Which is why you need Jesus. Third. The gospel commands us to turn from our vain gods and idols to the living God. I, I, I love that Paul doesn't even call them gods. He doesn't even give them that. He says, turn, repent from these vain things. They're not real. And they're certainly not gods. So he commands them to turn from the vain things to the living God. And, and friends, and friends, it's easy for us to look at these people in first century Lystra and Derby and go, what in the world is wrong with y'all? How would you put Zeus on your throne? How would you sacrifice things to Hermes? But friends, we have a throne. There is a throne, if you will, in, in each of our hearts and in each of our minds, and, and, and something, someone is on that throne. And the trail to that throne is blazed by the things that we love, the things that we think about, the things that we're most committed to. And I'm not saying all those things are bad. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But if anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ is on that throne, it will be, just, just hear this as a warning, less than the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's a spouse, a child, a job, a like whatever it is, or a sin. It will not come through for you in the way that Jesus Christ comes through and has come through for you. 
And so Paul's words to us, if he was standing up here today, would be, hey, hey, turn from the vain things and look to the living God. Fourth, context matters. Now, here's what I mean, and I have to speed up here. I'm taking way longer than I anticipated. Context matters in that, did you notice that as far as what's recorded, because this is a purely Gentile congregation, he doesn't even mention the Old Testament, at least not quoting prophets and such as we've seen in the past. Why? Because they have no idea what he's talking about. Like literally, they would be as confused as he was when they're talking about Zeus and Hermes. So in his initial, again, you want to get to those things, but in his initial proclamation of what was true, he says to them, I bring you good news. And then the very next thing he says is, look, but in order to see this good news, receive this good news, you're going to have to turn from these vain things. But when you turn from these vain things, you're not going to turn to other vain things. You're going to turn to a creator. And that's where he goes. He literally goes to Genesis 1-1 and says, God, this living God, who is not like your dead, fake gods, this living God created everything. And so they're turning, as again, unbelievers, they're turning from what is not real to what is real, and what is real is really real in that he created everything. And then he tells us something of the character of this creator. He's been patient with you. Man. Amen. Man. He's been patient. He even uses, he overlooked. He, he's, he's been patient with you. And he's been good to you. I mean, just bringing it down to our just simple human terms, he's essentially looking at them going, have you ever enjoyed a sunset? Have you ever been thankful for the rain? Have you ever eaten a good batch of collard greens and meant, mm, no? Okay. Fried chicken? Come on, I'm a soul food guy, okay? But look, but seriously, like, like that's what he, he's bringing them. This is brilliant. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Proclamation of the gospel. He's making it relatable to humans because he's just like them, remember? Have, have you ever enjoyed these things? Have you ever looked out and gone, wow? Don't give it to Zeus. He's not real. Don't praise Hermes. Don't worship the sun. Don't talk to the mountains. Turn to the one true living God. Look beyond the mountains. Look above the trees. To the true King of kings. And so context matters. And again, all of us shouldn't be able to do this all the time. Like I know, like this takes practice. This takes training. But if we don't understand verse 4, we are going to, and I don't reference any particular song here, but we will be a wrecking ball. Okay? We will be a wrecking ball, and you will do more damage than good if you don't take seriously contextualization. Love the person. Look them in the eyes and establish common ground with a path to get to what matters most. Jesus Christ. In verses 19 through 23, and I wish I could tell you things got better, 
But these Jews are stalking him. If you look at verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, so they've chased him down. And, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Now, now, now watch this. Like, what, what, a, what a fickle group. Like, y'all, mobs are fickle, okay? We see it in our day. Like, the mobs, the mobs, wherever they are, where, like, they're fickle. They just sort of get blown with the wind. Like, the, the next person with charisma that comes in and sounds halfway decent or looks halfway decent, they just follow and start bowing at their feet. Well, this crowd that was just offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas now has been persuaded to kill them. Kill them. And so they think they do. They drag Paul out of the city after they stoned him, supposing that he was dead. Verse 20, in a plot twist, <laughs> but when the disciples gathered about him around Paul, so again, visualize, Paul's, Paul has been, you know, stoning is not like throwing one rock. This is a brutal experience. And he's evidently been knocked unconscious. So the disciples gathered around him. He rose up and entered the city. I really wish Dr. Luke, since he's a doctor, would have said with multiple lacerations to his face, you know, like something. But evidently Paul just gets up, and that's the most impressive thing about it, and entered the city. And on the next day he went. Now notice, he, he's been... He has been stoned and rejected and run out of this city. He's drugged to the city border. He's gotten up from that beating. And what does he do? Walks right back through the blood-stained streets. Verse 21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Oh, friends, these are wonderful verses. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. A couple of highlights here. Um, um, we do learn something about, and this is, could be a whole separate sermon, but about like what Christian life includes, or church life, if you will, what it includes. We see that it's led by, biblically, a plurality, which means multiple elders who lead. So there's elders established in these churches, and these elders lead the way in. The first thing we see is strengthening souls by feeding the word and exercising obedience. I know if you've been in church, you've been hearing that since you can remember being in church. Read your Bible every day and obey it. Well, read your Bible every day and obey it. <laughs> like, that, that's part, like elders are to lead the way in as God has gifted them to teach the word of God and to be faithful to open the word of God with the congregation and to strengthen souls by feeding the word and exercising obedience. Second thing that you see, these elders lead the way in encouraging the faith. Now, these aren't limited to the elders, by the way. The elders are, that's why I word it this way, lead the way in. The elders should be the primary example, like leading the way in these things and encouraging faith. Third, and man, you think Paul could encourage faith? They've just watched this dude go through all they've watched him go through. And I'm sure they're going, maybe he is Zeus. <laughs> Joking, but still. Third, acknowledging trials. 
stepping stone. Friends, that goes back to our little section on division. The word is made very clear. The word has made very clear. And part of Paul's message to these new churches is that on the way to Jesus, on the way to Jesus, there are going to be trials. Some of them self-inflicted. Some of them because when the truth is proclaimed, it divides and there's going to be persecution. Some of them just because we live in a broken, fallen world. But the Bible is crystal clear in that being a follower of Jesus Christ means that we do have hope today. It means that we are forgiven today. It means that we are saved. But it does not mean that our lives are all of a sudden a Hallmark movie since we're coming into Christmas season. It's clear. Through many trials, in his scarred up face from rocks, through many trials we must enter the kingdom of God. And so it's still true today, friends. There are going to be many trials in this life. But in those trials, the Lord is faithful. In those trials, the Lord is sovereign. And Paul's message is to strengthen the souls of those that he knows are going to go through trials. Because if your soul's weak when that trial hits, you're going to know. You're going to know. It's what Christian community is primarily about. Caring enough about one another to strengthen one another's souls. Reminding one another faithfully about who Jesus is and what he's done. Being faithful to check in on a brother and a sister. Being, being, being faithful to hold one another accountable. Being willing to have conversations that we know may divide. See, that's Christian love. Christian love is, is a faithfulness and a commitment to the truth no matter what comes. Because of that commitment to the truth. But when there's a group of people that are committed to the truth, souls are built up. Faith, sometimes unexplained, is strong. Lastly, I have to be quick here, let's see. There's one particular place I want you to see in verse 26. And, and I don't have time, Jeremy, to read all those last things on there. Um, but I want you to see verse 26 as they passed through, uh, passed through in 24 through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And then verse 26, mid-sentence, it says, and there they sailed to Antioch. So, so they're, going, they're, all, they're, they're full circle. They're back to the original Antioch now, okay? Back to the original Antioch where they left, where they had been committed to the grace of God. This is what I want you to see for the, for the work they had fulfilled. They finished. Now, this is just the first missionary journey. But man, as, as they gathered back in Antioch with some of those Christians that sent them out, and it says, it goes on to say in verse 27, and they arrived and gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That too is to be what would highlight a Christian gathering. Whether it's two people or 250 people or 2,000 people, it's essentially week after week after week when we open the Bible and say, look what God has done. When we share our stories and say, look what God has done. But I think the main takeaway, Joseph, you can come back, buddy. The main takeaway for us this morning 
because I, I know some of your stories. Some of you know my story. Like, like it, it is true there are many tribulations, there are many trials as we, uh, as we are journeying toward one day being with Jesus face to face. I think the takeaway from Acts chapter 14 for us boiled down to just one word is continue. Continue. Don't stop. Continue looking to Jesus. Don't be snatched away. Continue to be committed to having your soul strengthened by the word. Continue to encourage one another's faith. Continue to be intentional about the relationships that are around you so that your soul is strengthened and your faith is encouraged. Isolation is the quickest way. The quickest way to fall into depression and anxiety and to feel like you're just in a spiritual wasteland. When you get off by yourself and you get in your own head and you're the only one talking to yourself and, and you've, you have not continued in the gathering with other believers, you've not continued in committing yourself to what is true, you will find yourself in despair. And if that's you this morning, I want you to hear the precious words of Christ Himself when He says, Come to me. Oh, you're weary? Raise your hand. Heavy laden? Burden? Life come at you too fast? You're, or, or maybe you're like over the hill like me. Like you're over the hill and you're like, this is not what I expected. Things are not going as planned. Not where I thought I'd be when I was 45, 50, 60, 70 years old. And, and depression creeps in. Continue. Look to Jesus Christ. The only way out of that, that, that sort of wasteland of depression and anxiety where Satan just has a field day is to fix our eyes on Christ. So brothers and sisters, however it falls on you this morning, continue. Don't quit. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.